Welcome to this Vetfolio educational podcast brought to you in part by DECRA. We're pleased that you've decided to join us as we explore the topic of punting pyoderma, achieving antimicrobial stewardship, with our guest speaker, Dr. White. Dr. White received her DVM from the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine in 2010, followed by a one-year internship in small animal medicine and surgery at Auburn University. She was accepted to the dermatology residency at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbane the following year, where she completed three years of specialty training and a master's degree in 2014. Dr. White has completed her certificate examination in dermatology in 2014 and joined Auburn University as an assistant clinical professor in dermatology. Before we join Dr. White, I'd like to note that the information provided in this session is intended to provide you with practical and timely information to assist you as a veterinary professional. The views and opinions provided are those of the presenter and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vetfolio and its sponsors. Now, let's dive into our session with our guest speaker, Dr. White. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, and thank you for joining me today to talk about bacterial skin infections in dogs. Pyoderma is very common. It is a common secondary complication of other primary diseases. I don't know about you, but I personally get excited when I'm trying to guess how bad the patient will look based off the malodor seeping from under the exam room door. For some of us, we love a great skin case. The crustier, the better for me. But for some of us, we'd rather be performing surgery for four hours. That one, definitely not me. But no matter your preference, you will have to treat your fair share of bacterial skin infections. So it's very important to feel comfortable with doing that. When the cases are not treated appropriately, they will come back to haunt you, returning week after week for further progression of hair loss, crusted skin, malodor, and if you're using a systemic antibiotic, odds are resistance is or has already developed. So what do you need to know to be able to conquer every bacterial skin infection that you see? I think the first and most important thing to realize is all infections happen for a reason. In most cases, something goes awry with the normal environment of the skin whether that be a change in the skin barrier function, pH, temperature, humidity, or even the cutaneous immune system. Once the normal environment changes, the bacteria and yeast living on the surface of the skin, normally at low numbers, start to overgrow and perpetuate the inflammation at the site. These infections can remain localized or they can spread over large areas of the skin. Sometimes the original insult may dissipate and the dog's immune system kicks back in gear fast enough to self-resolve the infection. Those cases never come to see you. But usually, if they're coming in to see you, then the infection is not going away. So while it is very important to actually treat the infection itself, you always need to consider why it happened in the first place. Diagnosing the primary disease that led to the infection will allow you to target this problem so that the infection will resolve faster and completely, and so that you won't be left with a client who's returning in a few weeks with the same complaint and likely a few choice words for you. What kind of primary diseases cause pyoderma? Really, anything that changes the immune system can predispose a pet to developing a pyoderma. Some of the most common 
include allergies, which is probably the number one reason I see a pyoderma, endocrine disorders like hypothyroidism, Cushing's, and less likely diabetes, autoimmune diseases, primarily those affecting the skin like pemphigus, lupus, vasculitis, adverse skin, drug reactions. Also systemic autoimmune diseases can predispose patients to pyoderma. Nutritional deficiencies, which may be diet-related or patient-related. Thinking here about zinc-responsive dermatosis or vitamin A-responsive dermatosis as more of patient-related issues compared to a puppy who's eating an incomplete, unbalanced diet. Neoplasia, immune-suppressive medications, including both those administered systemically, like steroids, cyclosporin, azathioprine, mycophenolate, but also those administered topically, which also might include steroids, but also hormone replacement therapies that an owner might be using. Always try your best to determine the primary disease so that you can better control the bacterial infection. I think at this point, most of you feel pretty comfortable with recognizing a potential pyoderma when you see one. Interestingly, there are different types of pyoderma, but the most common one that we see clinically is superficial bacterial folliculitis, and that usually is caused by the organism Staphylococcus pseudintermedius in the dog. Some of the most telling signs that you might have this include itchiness, papules, pustules, crust, epidermal collarettes, alopecia, and erythema. Just because a patient may have those clinical signs, it's important to remember that other diseases besides superficial bacterial dermatitis can cause identical lesions. This includes other infectious diseases like dermatophytes, parasites like Demodex, and even autoimmune diseases like pemphigus. That is why it is crucial to always get a good history as well as perform some simple and basic diagnostics, which might include Woods Lamp, tape or direct impressions for cytology, deep and superficial skin scraping, and dermatophyte culture. If you find cocci on cytology obtained from one of these classic superficial bacterial dermatitis lesions, let's say an intact pustule, then this is highly supportive of your diagnosis of pyoderma. If you find cocci inside of a white blood cell, bazinga, that is a confirmed diagnosis. Just because you cannot find any or many cocci or white blood cells does not rule out pyoderma, especially if the dog has a compromised immune system. Let's say it's on steroids or similar medications. Unless the patient history unveils recent or multiple previous exposures to antibiotics, most of the time you will treat the case empirically. Now, it is never wrong to do a culture first prior to selecting an antibiotic despite a patient's medical history. In fact, it probably would be the best thing that we could do as practitioners prior to exposing an animal to an antibiotic. If your patient does have a history of previous antibiotic exposure, then you should strongly consider performing aerobic culture prior to initiating an antibiotic again. Remember, you still need to do the cytology. This is important for a couple of reasons. One, it helps you to select an ideal culture site. And two, if you find cocci on cytology, but you fail to grow it up in culture, then you should try to culture again, because odds are you just missed it on culture, and it is not truly some sterile pustular disease, which is a much less common diagnosis as compared to pyoderma. Selecting your culture from a primary lesion like a pustule 
will greatly enhance the probability of getting an expected and reliable outcome on culture. Papules and epidermal collarettes are great second choices if you cannot find an intact pustule. When considering if you think you're dealing with an antibiotic-resistant infection, remember, all antibiotic use leads to resistance. This is hugely important, and it is the fundamental concept to keep in mind, because even in yours and your owner's best efforts to nip that infection in the bud, bacteria are always going to be working against you. They want to survive, and so they develop resistance from the first dose of antibiotic that is administered. The International Society for Companion Animal Infectious Diseases, or ISCAD, has developed very helpful guidelines for diagnosing and treating canine superficial bacterial folliculitis, or pyoderma. These were published in the journal Veterinary Dermatology in 2014, and if you have not read all of their guidelines, I strongly encourage it. They also have helpful guidelines for treating other diseases like urinary tract infections. In their guidelines for pyoderma, they outline some very helpful clues that indicate to you that you're dealing with an antibiotic-resistant infection. So let's go through those. Number one, if there is less than a 50% reduction in clinical signs within two weeks of appropriate antibiotic exposure. This is definitely going to be a great time to sit down with your owners to be sure all of the medications are being administered appropriately. Usually instead of asking them, are you giving Fido the medications as prescribed? Because of course we all know they're gonna say yes. I typically say, describe to me how you are giving his medication and maybe what difficulties have you encountered with his treatments. This pretty much validates to the owners that it is not easy to stay on task with the treatments and it is okay to be honest with you. Number two, if new primary lesions are developing within two weeks or more of being on an appropriate antibiotic. This is a big clue here, so get out your magnifying glass and start monkeying through that hair coat. Number three, the presence of lesions after six weeks of antibiotic therapy, along with cocci found on cytology. Extended use of antibiotics will lead to resistance, so you need to start looking for clues that resistance is occurring if your patient is still taking an antibiotic after three to four weeks. Number four, the presence of intracellular rod-shaped bacteria on cytology. Rods are not your typical pathogen for superficial bacterial folliculitis, and you should always reach for culture prior to selecting an antibiotic when faced with these critters. The rods likely represent a normal flora like E. coli, Pseudomonas, Proteus, but they usually require a different class of antibiotics to treat. If these are not selected appropriately, then resistance is a real threat. And finally, number five, if the pet or a housemate has a history of an antibiotic-resistant infection. The scary thing about staph bacteria is that they like to share resistance mechanisms with each other within different hosts, even between people and animals. Yikes, microbes are fascinating, but highly disturbing. So now that you have all of this helpful information for your diagnostic plan, it's time to develop a treatment plan. Remember, communication is key when it comes to being successful with therapy. Clients need to understand why and for how long it is important that their pets take the medications you prescribe, how to appropriately administer them, and what to watch for that you need to be notified of. 
in these conversations, take the time to ask the client if they can be compliant or if modifications need to be made right now. It's better to determine what blocks you are going to have before you even get started with therapy. This could include a patient that tries to bite the owner when pilled or that brachycephalic dog that blocks its entire throat with its super fat tongue. Other important considerations include cost and availability of the therapy, safety for the owner and the pet, previous adverse reactions to similar medications, and the owner's physical capability of performing the treatment. When we talk about antimicrobial stewardship and the veterinary oath, we should always strive to help without harming. In the case of antibiotics, do not use them unless there is no alternative. While it is much faster and easier for us to send an owner out the door with a long-acting antibiotic injection, this is not always the right course. If you aren't using systemically administered antibiotics, then how do you treat them? The safest option is to use topical therapy. In fact, ISCAD recommends that, quote, topical therapy alone is encouraged as a desirable and recommended approach to the treatment of superficial bacterial folliculitis unless precluded by owner and or patient factors. Topical therapies come in many different forms, and your selection will be based on severity and extent of the infection itself, hair coat of the pet, compliance of the pet, ability of the owner to perform the treatment, cost, and availability, to name a few. If you have a patient that is smothered and covered in lesions from head to toe, then a medicated shampoo, spray, rinse, conditioner, or lotion is going to be the easiest and most effective treatment formula. But be sure to reach for products containing chlorhexidine or benzoyl peroxide as your top two choices when treating bacterial skin infections. There are many combination products out there that also have antifungal agents, and depending on your cytology results, this may be preferred for your case. These products are most commonly used two to three times per week until one week after the lesions have resolved, and then are decreased to being used once weekly as a prophylactic treatment option. Contact time is important, and your clients must understand why. Leaving the product in contact with the skin for 10 minutes allows the time for the agent to actually kill the organism. Most topical agents also have ingredients to restore the normal skin barrier and function, which will promote recovery and enhance resistance to infection. This includes the products like ceramides found in the Decra product line or phytosphingosine found in the Duxo product line. Other advantages include more rapid lesion resolution, decreased duration of systemic antibiotic therapy, removal of organisms and debris from the skin surface, and reduction in the risk of developing antibiotic-resistant infection. If you are dealing with a more focal or localized infection, the topical formulation preferred would be a gel, cream, ointment, lotion, or wipe. Overall, the take-home message is always use topical therapy when you can. Due to the variety of formulations and topical therapies, most of the time I can always find a way for every patient to get some form of topical therapy. But what do you do in cases when you still need systemic therapy? Perhaps you have an elderly client with that little dog that spits the pill out, or a patient that reacts to topical agents with increased reddening of the skin. 
selection and dosing of antibiotics will be key here. You always want to choose the most narrow spectrum possible. Use the most effective dose based off of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, and use the drug for the appropriate duration of time. So let's break that down. One, selecting the antibiotic. For empirical selection, iSCAD recommends to choose one of the following, cephalosporin, amoxicillin clavinate, sulfonamides, or lincosamides like clindamycin. This is considered your first tier category. iSCAD defines second or third antibiotic categories as those used when empirical selection of first tier systemic antibiotics and topical therapy are not appropriate, and when cultures indicate susceptibility. So the big take home message here, you need a culture first prior to moving into a second or third tier antibiotic category. Second tier antibiotics include third generation cephalosporins, tetracyclines, chloramphenicol, fluoroquinolones, rifampin, and aminoglycosides. Third tier antibiotics are ones that we should never use in veterinary medicine because these should be reserved for use in human medicine. That includes drugs like linazolid, tycoplanin, and vancomycin. Number two, choosing a dose. My mantra for dosing antibiotics is go big or go home. You want the largest possible dose to kill the organism without negatively impacting your patient. Remember that the formularies may not always be the most up-to-date addition, so cross-referencing with other formularies or even better to scientific papers will ensure that you are dosing the drug appropriately. We don't have enough time to go through all of the drugs and what the appropriate dose is right now, but remember, every antibiotic is unique and dosing has to be tailored to the patient based off of the organism you are trying to kill. Number three, treating for the appropriate duration of time. In general, we recommend to treat one week past clinical resolution. For most infections, this usually is about three to four weeks. Some patients will resolve within two weeks, but most patients require longer therapy than this. If therapy is discontinued too quickly, then the infection will clinically recur. Why is this so? This all comes down to the immune system. When the bacteria overgrow in the hair follicle, the immune system responds by sending inflammatory cells to the site to clean up that infection. Once enough inflammatory cells invade a hair follicle, the clinical lesion develops. We call that papule or pustule. As the infection is treated with an antibiotic, the inflammatory cells downregulate quickly as they're not really needed so much anymore, and so our papule or pustule resolves. However, there may still be enough residual bacteria hanging out in the hair follicle to regrow if the antibiotic is discontinued too early. Anecdotal evidence suggests that extension of therapy one week past clinical resolution is usually sufficient to prevent recurrent pyoderma. Treating superficial bacterial folliculitis is not easy, but it can be very rewarding for you and for your clients. Preventing recurrence of infection is based largely off of appropriate selection and duration of antimicrobial therapy, identification and treatment of the primary cause, and use of prophylactic antimicrobial topical therapies in animals chronically predisposed to infection. Remember, all antibiotic use leads to resistance, and topical therapies should be used whenever possible. I hope this helps to shed some light on bacterial skin infections for you today so that you can get out there and start punting pyodermas. Thank you for listening. Dr. White, thank you so much for your time and insights today. 
Listeners, we appreciate you spending some time with us, and we hope that you found the information shared in this session useful. If you would like to learn more about this topic, please be sure to check out our related programs, which you can access from vetfolio.com. Thank you again to our podcast sponsor, DECRA, for their support. Let us know what you thought about this session and what other topics you'd like to hear on a future podcast. You can connect with the Vetfolio team via email at support at vetfolio.com.